Man, that's great. Let's, uh, let's go straight to the Lord and pray after that. Father, we uh, come to you this morning and give you great play, praise for that atonement. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have in Christ. Father, we, uh, we rejoice and we give you praise. We worship you this morning and no other. We don't bow down to uh, anything that our culture would offer. We don't bow down to anything that our sinful hearts would lift up. We bow down to you and you alone. And we give you glory today. I pray that you would be glorified in our time today. I pray that you would be lifted up. I pray that we would learn from your word. I pray that uh, you would teach us by your spirit in our inner man that we might mature in Christ, that we might come to understand who is this God who has saved us or offers salvation. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time this morning. I pray that you would help us and work in our hearts. I pray that we would glorify you with our thoughts, with our minds, with uh, with our attitudes, and with our time this morning. We lift you up and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Exodus chapter 2. We are moving along at a blistering pace through the book of Exodus. Today we're going to do an entire chapter, Lord willing. So uh, don't count on that every time, but... We are going to pick up the pace a little bit, but uh, what a study so far. What a God we are learning about. If you think about what we know about God from the book of Genesis, it's a lot when you consider that they knew, you know, there's nothing there, no, no information about him at the beginning, and then we learn all of this through the book of Genesis. But then by the time we get to the book of Exodus, it is really time to learn a lot about who this God is. And so um, we, we are blessed to be able to go through this together. Thank you for... Um, going with us through an Old Testament book. Probably most people don't spend as much time reading through the Old Testament as they, as they do the New Testament, though, of course, the Old Testament is, is about twice as long as the New Testament, or maybe even three times. But uh, we tend to spend uh, more time in the New Testament because we love Jesus, and that's good and right to love Jesus and want to read about him. And uh, things are a little more simply laid out, perhaps, in the New Testament than perhaps they are in the Old Testament. But uh, the book of Exodus is powerful. And we looked a couple of weeks ago about how often the rest of the writers in the Bible look back to the book of Exodus to draw their material, right? That they wrote in such a, such a concise fashion in the New Testament for us. A lot of that was drawn from the book of Exodus. And so we are going back to uh, this source of um, so much revelation about who God is. We talked last week about uh, the midwives. And, and I'm sure some of you had some interesting uh, table conversation at lunchtime after, after our our service because we talked about the midwives and the fact that everyone agrees that the midwives should have protected those boys and uh, and done what they did because we should spare human life at all costs. But then when they were called on the carpet, they were willing to deceive Pharaoh. And, uh, and then there seems to be affirmation from God. There seems to be approval from God so closely after that that it kind of begged the question about, well, should they have lied or should they not have lied or did they actually lie? And... Um, so I, I just want to rehit that issue, and it, it, it ramps into what we're talking about here in chapter 2, as we're looking at chapter 2 of Exodus, that we will end up reading the entirety of uh, throughout the course of our sermon, though, though not, not just at the beginning here. But, but I wanted to rehit this issue of how the Bible talks about telling the truth, right? And, uh, of course, I had, I had youth group with the high school uh, Sunday evening after the service, and they were like, you know, they had a couple of questions for me, particularly since Chris Ward had gone been talking about about uh, lying and telling the truth and integrity and whatnot during Sunday school, and so they were they had a lot of questions for me, and uh, so I, I wanted to readdress that in fact. 
throughout Scripture, we do have very strong affirmations that we are to be a truthful people. In fact, if we look at Psalm 15, for example, I'm going to read the whole Psalm to you. It's not very long. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And so that's the testimony of Scripture everywhere with a couple of possible exceptions. And one of them was that midwife section we looked at last week. And another one is uh, is Rahab. You think of Rahab when the people were about to enter the land, so at the end of their journeys through the wilderness, you get into the book of Joshua, and and they are um, going into the land, and... um, they they go into the city and they're you know they're spies they're they're the enemy when they're there and this this lady Rahab puts them up she takes them in and she protects them and she hides them on the roof and whatnot and then when the the guards come knocking on the door and saying hey are there uh, some Israelites here because you know we thought we saw some in town she said well I don't know where they were from but they were here but they left she lied through her teeth right and she ends up being included in the line of Jesus as an ancestor of Jesus. And so uh, very, very few times, rare instances come up in Scripture where we seem to have godly people, people who love God and walk with Him, and they're presented with a circumstance, and in both of those circumstances, by the way, and there are others, not many, but in both of those circumstances, there was innocent life at stake. And they thought it necessary in that situation to lie. And we have no indication in Scripture that they should not have done that. And so, how, how do I conclude with that? The Bible everywhere teaches we should be honest except for a couple of possible exceptions in these kind of situations. And I would say, okay, here's, here's, here's what you can write down and take away. This is, this is what the pastor said. I, I, I think it is consistent with Scripture, and uh, I, I believe it is, that you should tell the truth until the Nazis come knocking. Until ISIS comes and bangs down your door and says, are there any Christians here? Are you hiding Christians? Are you harboring Christians? Or In that case, we have examples from Scripture of, of solid believers by all indications who deceived those men. And so you have, you have the midwives who, who deceive Pharaoh. And not only are they breaking the rules by keeping these babies alive, but then they're saying, well, there's this situation going on where the Hebrew women are just so vigorous and they have the babies before we can even get there. So, sorry, boss. We can't, uh, can't make that happen. They lied. And, uh, and so I think in those rare situations, in those rare situations, which I have yet to experience in my life, except for those, tell the truth. And our passage today is going to brush up against kind of the same sorts of ideas. Uh, the Israelites are still slaves in Egypt. We're moving on into chapter 2. And uh, Pharaoh has issued this decree that all of the baby boys from the Hebrews are to be killed. They're to be thrown into the Nile and, uh, and drowned. And um, so that's the decree that's out there. And so one of our story today is about one of those baby boys and uh, who he's going to grow up to be. And so we see that he's born as a slave, but he becomes a prince. 
He goes from slave to prince. And so if I start reading in Exodus chapter 2 and start at verse 1 there, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And so here you have uh, this this woman who's a Levite woman and she gets married and, and uh, they, they have a child. And, you know, it's bad enough to be born into a slave family, but to be born a boy into a slave family at this time was the worst because he had a death sentence on his head uh, immediately at birth. And there's this, this edict still stands that he as a, a boy Hebrew is to be thrown into the Nile. That's, the, that's what uh, Pharaoh has said is supposed to happen to him. And he, the plan is either that he'll drown in the Nile, of course, or that he'll get eaten by crocodiles because it's infested with crocodiles. And, and so uh, what mother's going to allow that? And so this mother has this baby and keeps him as long as she can. But for whatever reason, she's not able to keep him any longer. As kids get bigger, they get noisier. You know, maybe that's part of it. It doesn't say, but it says she was unable to anymore. And so she, she makes a basket or she takes a basket, which is some of your Bibles say the essay and ark. It's the same word as Noah's ark, right? The, the idea of an ark is a basket. It doesn't refer to any particular size, but it's a basket that has something very precious stored in it that's to be guarded safeguarded and protected and of course in the in uh, in the book of genesis that was uh, all of you know living air breathing creatures including including uh, noah and his family and so and here you have this baby boy who is a a treasure and she puts him in this ark she waterproofs it and she sets the baby afloat along the edge of the nile and uh so here he is born into this family and he's going to be a slave and is, he's supposed to die, but his mom spared him. She was able to protect him and whatnot. And, and then she finally makes a basket, waterproofs it, and puts it in the, you know, the Nile River along the edge there in the reeds. What must she have been thinking? Like it doesn't tell us what she was thinking. It just tells us what she did. But did she have a plan? Did she, you know, what, what did she think was going to happen? I don't know and, and uh, it doesn't tell us, but it tells us very clearly that she disobeys Pharaoh's command, uh, just like the midwives before. She keeps the baby alive as long as possible, and when she's out of options, this is what she does. I don't know what she was thinking, but she she thought enough to send her daughter to watch over this baby. So here, you know, she she doesn't launch him out into the Nile and you know let the current just do what it was going to do with him or whatever. She kind of puts him along the reeds there, and then she sends her daughter to go and watch older daughter, and so she's standing there peeking through the bushes, paying attention, and, and uh, we don't know what kind of plan she had, we just know what she does, and uh, it's pretty extraordinary, and we know what happens is pretty extraordinary. So so here you have this baby, and he was born into slavery, but he was hidden from Pharaoh, and now we're going to see that he's exposed, and he ends up being returned, right? And so uh, reading from verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe. Well, that's pretty fortuitous. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, 
Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the child went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So he's exposed, but he's also returned, right? With the baby floating there on the edge, right down amongst the reeds, and with big sister watching on, you know, kind of looking around the tree or whatever, she's, she's, she's looking, I don't, is she, you know, trying to keep the baby from going out into the current or trying to, maybe she's going to run and grab him if crocodiles show up, I don't know. But Pharaoh's daughter shows up and she's going to bathe there. And, uh, that's pretty extraordinary. I don't know if she had, you know, how conniving exactly she was. Had she scouted this out and she knew that, on Tuesday afternoons, the Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe in this particular spot or what. I, I don't exactly know, but, but um, there's this baby, and Pharaoh's daughter goes down there, and she sees it, and she looks, and behold, it's this baby. And the baby's crying, as, as you, you can imagine. And, uh, and so what's she going to do? It's a weird situation. Well, she takes pity on the baby, like any woman with a heart would do. She takes pity on this baby, and somehow she even recognizes that, that the baby's not Egyptian, uh, but a Hebrew, and maybe it's from the style of the blankets or the type of basket or whatever. I don't know, but what she says is, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And so, apparently, that's the cue for the sister, right, who's been looking through the bushes. As soon as she hears that, she pops out, and uh, she says, uh, shall I go and call you a nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? She's Johnny on the spot, right? She's right there just in time. As soon as Pharaoh's daughter responds and, and is like, you know, what's going on here? And this is, this is a Hebrew child. She jumps out and, and I have a plan. I just, just came up with it off the top of my head. And uh, I was just walking by and, you know, and I came up with this plan. And so um, it's, it's interesting. The commentators kind of argue with each other. Is, is Pharaoh's daughter a complete ditz and doesn't know anything's going on? Is she completely bamboozled by this whole situation, falls right into their trap? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think she, uh, you know, she knows this is a pretty strange situation, that here's this baby, and oh, what do you know, it's a Hebrew baby, that's kind of weird, and then boom, out pops a he- little Hebrew girl right there at that exact time and says, oh, I happen to know a woman who could nurse this baby for you if you'd like. I, I think she's on to it, and uh, whether she's on to it or, or how much she figures out, I don't know, but her response is, okay, go ahead. And so uh, the baby sister goes back and, and gets her mom, and comes back with uh, with mom and a good situation, right? I don't know if that was the plan. It was God's plan, though you don't see God being referred to here. But it works out well. And so the mother comes back. Pharaoh's daughter uh, at that time makes about the best possible offer that you could think of as a mom. Here, I have this child, and it's a Hebrew child, needs to be nursed. Would you mind doing that for me? Says Pharaoh's daughter to the mom who was nursing the baby that morning, you know. And, uh, and so she's, she's pretty excited. So, uh, you know, imagine how, how much she agonized over the situation before, how unknown it was. Imagine how the cards were stacked against her in that situation that Pharaoh said, you're supposed to put that child to death. And she hides the child for three months and, and, uh, and then she finally puts it out in the water and everything looked like it was stacked against her. Uh, you know, that's pretty steep odds. And then Pharaoh's daughter finds the thing. Finds the baby, and uh, the sister steps up, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, the mom is being handed back her son and being told to go nurse him. What a great deal. And it gets more than that, because what does Pharaoh's daughter say? And I will pay you your wages. Right? 
Isn't that like God? And uh, I, I, was, I was thinking about Nehemiah wanting to go back and rebuild the wall, right? So several books later in the Bible, the book of Nehemiah, the uh, nation of Israel has been out of, uh, they've been in exile out of their country for, for uh, decades and decades. And, and uh, Nehemiah is praying about this. He's agonizing over this. He's heard bad reports that things are going bad, badly in Jerusalem. And here he's, he's not there. He's, he's in exile elsewhere. And, and what does he do? Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king, he, he goes to the king and he, after praying, he addresses the king and he said, you know, he, he ends up explaining what's going on, that uh, we need to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, you know, the city that you captured, and, and it's, it's a distant kind of small kind of place compared to what you are, but that's really what's on my heart is to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And, and what, does, um, what does the king say? Okay. And by the way, here, take these letters and we'll pay for it all <laughs> to, rebuild, to rebuild the Jewish city. And so it's just like God to to spur Pharaoh's daughter to, to not, not only give this baby back, which would have been plenty, but to give a wage also. And so God was taking care of this baby and taking care of this family. So we have the babies exposed and the babies returned. And, and you see in the next couple of verses there how the baby is also adopted and named. Verse 10 there, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So she gets to go and take this baby, the mom does, and, and she gets to nurse the baby all the way up until weaning time. I don't know, two years old, three years old. Uh, they did things a little bit differently than we do now, but, uh, but she, what joy she must have had to have gotten, you know, to have gotten to have this baby for another couple of years and uh, love him. But then what does she have to do? She has to give him up and he becomes Pharaoh's daughter's son. And so she, named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And so the Hebrew, the Hebrew name of Moses sounds like the word for to draw it out. And so uh, that's what she names him. And you're going to see, by the way, through the rest of Moses' life that there's going to be some connection between him and water. Uh, that, that God does a lot of things through water in, in Moses' story. You know, think about turning the water to blood and think about parting the, the Red Sea so that the, the people can go through. That's Moses doing that. And you think about Moses striking the rock and then Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and then Moses throwing a stick into, to the water, you know, and, and all those things have to do with water. And so he was drawn out of the water. And so we have a very interesting character being introduced here, Moses. He's a Hebrew and he's an Egyptian, kind of. He's a slave, but he's a prince. Very interesting character. So what, what's he going to be? What, what is God going to do with him? Well, we're going to see that he's going to move from uh, prince to refugee. Next several verses take us from prince to refugee. Look at, uh, look at verse 11 there in chapter 2. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And so here, some time has passed, and, and uh, it doesn't tell us here how much time has passed, but Stephen in the New Testament, preaching on this same passage in Acts chapter 7, says that 40 years had elapsed. And so um, 40 years gone by, and, and, um, and so Moses, who's this prince, he has every privilege of being an Egyptian prince, daughter of, or a son of, of Pharaoh's daughter and whatnot, um, goes out to look at his people. We don't know exactly what spurred him to do that. We don't know what his motivation was. We know the fact that he went out to look upon his people's burdens. He goes out to see their hardship. 
And he goes out to see what it was like to be one of his kinsmen. He's a Hebrew. Seems like he figured it out somewhere along the way. Maybe his mom told him. He's a Hebrew, but he gets to be raised as an Egyptian. And an Egyptian prince, no less. And so while he's out there observing, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And so here you have Moses' first opportunity to be a deliverer of his people. The title of our message today is, is uh, Deliverer in Training. Well, here he gets to uh, step in and see how he does, try his hand at it and see what's going to happen, right? And it doesn't go so well. Of course, you see that this first deliverance is definitely deliverance gone awry. But I will say that if you look at the English text, it uh, it seems like Moses goes out, sees this this uh, injustice happening, and decides he's going to murder the guy. All right? If you look at the English passage, you see that he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck him down, and then he hid him in the sand. But in the in the Hebrew, it's not quite as clear that uh, that he was you know, going out with the intent uh, of killing this guy or that he decided that he was going to murder this guy in order to resolve, right? It kind of looks like he's looking around like, I see this situation going on, about to do this bad thing. No one's looking. Okay, now I can jump in and do this thing. There's a passage where um, in, in Isaiah, and uh, it's Isaiah 59, 16. It uses the same phrase when it's speaking about God. And it gives a little bit different picture. It says, uh, talking about God, he saw there was no man. Which, by the way, is what our Hebrew text says here. He looked this way and that and saw that there was no man. It's verbatim. And what does God do? And God wondered that, that, that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And so, speaking of God, there's a sense in which God looked around and, like, who's going to step in and deal with this? And I think that's what Moses was doing. He was looking around, not, you know, furtively like, okay, I can get away with it. Now's the time. You know, they walked around the corner or whatever. But instead, he's like, who's going to, you know, shouldn't there be a guard around or someone to take care of this? And he sees no one. Right? And so then he strikes the guy. And your English version, or my, my English version, says it's, he struck him down. Well, he did strike him down. The guy ended up dying. But the same word is used for the way the Egyptian was beating the Hebrew. He was striking him. It's the same Hebrew word. He was hitting him. The Egyptian guy was hitting the Hebrew guy. So Moses stepped in and hit the Egyptian guy. Just the result was different. And so I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think Moses, you know, was trying to murder this guy and take it on himself like that. I don't think that was what was going on. I think, I think more he was, he was trying to bring justice and just didn't do a very good job and overdid it and killed the guy, beat the guy to death. And then he knows he's in trouble, so he hides the guy. Right? Now he's in trouble. So he hides the guy, buries him in the sand, and um, you know here you have Moses with his first opportunity to help deliver the people. He acts upon the opportunity, and it's disastrous. It's just disastrous. And so uh, verses 13 and 14 talk about not just deliverance gone awry, but deliverance rejected. Look at verses 13 and 14. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And so here he goes out the next day and he sees two more people fighting. But they're both Hebrews. Things are so bad that they're the brothers, brothers, but Hebrews are fighting against one another. 
And uh, he steps in and he's like, what are you guys doing? Don't you see that you, you have enough troubles with the, the Egyptians beating you? You don't need to be beating each other. Right? Stop this. And he's totally rejected. Right? The guy, the guy looks at him and, and says, who made you a prince and judge? Are, are, do you mean to kill me? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So here Moses had stepped in and in his faltering way had tried to help the plight of his people the Hebrews, in their situation. And uh, it didn't go well. He ended up killing the guy and burying him. Well, maybe that could still work out okay. No. He goes out the next day and the Hebrews know all about it and they don't want anything to do with him. Don't want anything to do with him. And so um, we have deliverance rejected. So not only did he screw it up, but this, looking at his own people, um, they didn't want him. And the irony here is what, what, what the guy says to him. Who made you a, a prince and judge over us? Well, God made him a prince when Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of the water and adopted him. That's how he became a prince. And for the rest of Moses' life, he's going to be a judge of the people. He's not yet, but he's going to be. And so I think there's irony in these words that Moses actually is going to have the authority that he's already acting on, but he's acting too soon and he's acting in the wrong way. So there's a, there's a lot of irony there. And, and um, you know, if you think about the rest of Moses' life, think about through the story of the remainder of the Pentateuch, are the people always, uh, you know, joyfully following Moses? He's rejected again and again and again. Moses, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? We could have died just as well in Egypt. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? You have to bring us out here to starve to death, you know, or die of thirst. Or uh, Moses, you know, you're, you're a terrible leader. They reject him again and again and again throughout the course of his ministry. And it's not just Moses who gets rejected, right? Think about the rest of the Old Testament prophets. Their, their task, their mission that they've been sent by God is to go to God's people and provide, speak deliverance to them, speak of uh, the way that God will save them out of their situation. Usually it has to do with them repenting of sin, by the way. And how do they treat the prophets? It wasn't good. If you've read Hebrews 11, you know that it didn't go well. Like They were arrested, they were... They were killed, they were tortured, they were abused, they were locked up, they were... It didn't go well with the prophets. Well, then think about Jesus' apostles, right? They died for their faith also. And here they were, sent with the message of salvation, sent with a message from God to his people, and they end up dying for it. Well, think of Jesus himself. With a message from God. Being himself the message from God of salvation. And he was despised and he was rejected. He was forsaken. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him because they loved the dark rather than the light. And so they killed him too. That's the way it is with, with God and his messengers very often. That his people, even his people, reject them. Reject them. The Bible talks about how in the end times it's going to be the same with us. That we gather around as people to tickle our ears because we'd rather, we'd rather hear uh, things that are pleasant to hear rather than the truth about how to know God, about His holiness, about my sin. And so it's, uh, it's, it's something that, that preachers need to keep in mind nowadays. And we remind each other and remind ourselves of this, that we need to speak the truth of Scripture to you, not just tell you what you want to hear. I don't really like to hear it all the time either. But when Scripture says it, we're going to say it. And so here you have Moses who's going to be God's deliverer, but he's totally rejected. 
right? And so uh, when, when he finds out that the, uh, the people know about the Egyptian guy that he killed and buried in the sand, and uh, he, he knows he's in trouble. Pharaoh finds out about it, so he runs off into the wilderness, right? And, uh, and he takes off, and Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely this thing is known, so he, he runs away and he hides, right? Look at verses 16 through 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew... So he runs away to Midian. The priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you come, come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered, watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So, he had an opportunity to defend and protect his people back in Egypt, and it didn't go well. First of all, he ended up killing the guy, didn't need to kill the guy, so he hides it, gets found out, and his own people reject him, by the way. Moses, we don't want you at all. And it's not just, you know, I, I, I might understand if they would look at him and say, you know, nice try, Moses, but, you know, there are millions of us, and you protected that one guy who was getting beat up by that one Egyptian. Yeah, nice job. That's about this much out of all that needs to be done. So uh, nice try, Moses. That's not what they say. They don't want anything to do with him at all. The issue isn't that he hasn't done enough. The issue is they don't want him, that, that murderer, to be a deliverer to be their deliverer. And so here he comes out into the desert and goes out there and he sits down by this well and, uh, and this, these, you know, seven daughters show up to, to water the flock and, and some, some other shepherds come up and drive the flock away and apparently this is an ongoing kind of situation. So here's Moses' other opportunity. He gets to step up in that situation and he's not delivering his people. The Midianites were, you know, relatives of the Hebrews, but it wasn't like these were Hebrews. That he was delivering. And they were outside of the land of Egypt. It says the land of Midian. Well, that's not exactly a defined territory. That's just a... Uh, the Midianites kind of wandered around the desert from uh, like southeast of the Dead Sea to south of the Dead Sea and like over even into Sinai Peninsula. They kind of wandered through the wilderness over there. And, and uh, so he, you know, why is he delivering these people? I don't know exactly, but it seems like there's something in Moses that makes him want to defend people who are defenseless. He wants to help them. And so this time it goes a lot better. He doesn't have to kill anybody, doesn't bury them in the sand, doesn't get run off, right? He just drives them away. And then he waters the flock, right? So I don't know if he's learned a little bit of control. I don't know if he's learned his place a little better. But the result is far better. He gets invited into... Uh, into Rule's home. Rule later on will be called Jethro. There's a difficulty about, uh, you know, is it Rule or is it Jethro? Are they related to each other? Are they different guys? How many people in the Bible have two names? A whole lot. <laughs> so I think it's I think it's the same guy that sometimes he's referred to as Jethro. Later on, he'll be referred to as Jethro. Here he's referred to as Rule. You think of Jacob. What's Jacob's? What, what did God change his name to? Israel. You know, or you have Abram and Abraham. So it's a pretty normal thing for people in the Bible to have two names. 
I think that's the deal here. But so Rule invites him into his home, and uh, and and it says Moses was content to be there. And so Rule even gave him his daughter, Zipporah, and they got married. And so here you have Moses, who was you know born into this situation as a slave. He was exposed on the water. He might have died there, but he was captured by, or he was retrieved by Pharaoh's daughter. He might have died there, but he gets to be nursed by his mom and raised there until he goes to be Pharaoh's daughter. Now he's a now, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's son, and now he's a prince, a prince of Egypt. And now, not only that, he's a refugee, and he's in a foreign land, and he's going to live for another 40 years in this foreign land. Amongst the Midianites with Zipporah, he's going to be taking care of sheep for 40 years. <laughs> and so he's come a long way. He's become a refugee, but at least now he's happy. He says he's content, content to be there. And so we're going to shift in our scene from what's going on with all the, you know, the description of what's happening in Moses' life. And we're going to look from earth. We're going to look up to heaven. So look at verses 23 through 25 there. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Up until this time, all, all through the story, God has been in the background. Yeah, he, he, blessed, he blessed the midwives when they did what they did, and he gave them families. And he, he, we can see God blessing the children of Israel with their, with their multiplying and all the children they're having and the way he's, he's growing them that way. We can see that, and we can even see God's work providentially in the life of Moses. But he's kind of been in the background. And here in these verses, we're going to see that God is going to come to the foreground. We flash from what's going on in, on earth to how God is going to receive it into heaven. And it's, uh, it's powerful how he does it. First of all, uh, it says that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard. God hears. He's not deaf. God hears. And this, this doesn't mean that the, the, the crying got so loud that finally he was like, oh, I detect some sound down in the land of Egypt. And uh, it's not that he hadn't heard it and now he hears it. The, the noise hadn't been loud enough and now it's loud enough or his hearing got better. It's not like that. Here in the Bible, just like when you talk to your children, do you hear me? You don't just mean are the sounds coming out of my mouth entering your ear and going into your brain somehow. That's not what we mean. Do you hear me? <laughs> means there should be some response to what is being heard. There should be some response. The Shema of uh, later on in in, uh, in the Bible, we're going to see that in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, it's it's like the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. It's hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on, you shall love the Lord your God, etc. But when he says hear, O Israel. He doesn't just mean, you know, take your earbuds out. He means act upon this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? And so God hears. That means he's gathering in this information and he is going to respond accordingly. He's going to act based upon what he has heard. He's not deaf to their situation. To this point, he's been in the background. We haven't really seen him. We haven't seen what's going on in heaven. 
We don't really know what God has been up to. We've only seen what's going on on the ground, and it's kind of mystifying. But God is not deaf to their situation. He hears. He hears what they're going through, and he's going to respond. And it says there, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered. God remembers. It's not that God forgot and then needed his his memory to be jogged. That's not what it means to remember something in the Bible. To remember it means to call it back in front of you, to make it the top priority. You know, you've got on your desk, you've got a list of to-do things. It's to take this thing out and put it on the top. This is my to-do right now. This is the priority. He remembers. He remembers. And look at what he remembers. He doesn't just remember, oh yeah, I really love these people. He remembers that. But he remembers his covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Flip back to Genesis 12. This should be Genesis 12 should be emblazoned in your mind. This is the basis of his covenant with the nation of Israel. He's going to refine it. He's going to build more on it as he goes through the book of Genesis. He's going to do so, by the way, with Abraham a couple more times. And then with Isaac, he will reaffirm this covenant. And then with Jacob, he will reaffirm this covenant. But here it all stems from Genesis chapter 12. By the way, if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, that's page 8. Now the Lord said to Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham, Go from your country and and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's going to multiply them. He's going to bless them. He's going to give them a land. And he remembers that. He calls that back to mind. Not because he'd forgotten it, because he wanted it to be forefront in what's about to happen. He remembers it. He calls it to mind. It's his, the covenant that he made with Abraham, then he reaffirmed with Isaac and then with Jacob. And it's interesting that that covenant spurs him on in light of their groaning. Think about the things that they were promised in Genesis 12 and then repeated later on. They were going to be blessed, and everyone who blessed them God was going to bless, and those who cursed them, God was going to curse. Pharaoh's on that list. He was going to take them into the land, the land of Canaan, but right now they're locked in the land of Egypt. Can't get there. He's going to multiply them, and they were going to become great, and here you have Pharaoh saying, I'm going to, I'm going to limit your numbers by killing your children. So God calls that to mind. He remembers his covenant. This is what I said I would do. Here's what the circumstances are. It's time to act. So he remembers. He's attached his name to this people. He's promised them that they will be a great nation with descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea and that he will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them, and it's time. He's promised them a land, they're locked out of it, and it's time. He remembers his covenant with them and, he pro- and, and all the promises that he made to them, and God sees He looks at his covenant, and then he looks on their situation to compare the two. He sees what they're going through. Like Moses going out to look on the burdens of the people, God takes stock of all that is going on with his chosen people. They're working like dogs under the boot of Egypt. They're being beaten and cursed by Pharaoh and his people. They're not allowed to return to their rightful land that God has promised them. 
They're having their baby boys that God had given them, by the way, having those baby boys threatened with death at the very moment when they first breathe life. They're groaning because of their slavery. They're crying out to help, but there is no visible help. God sees all of that. He remembers the covenant he made with their fathers. He sees the conditions they are currently in, and he knows. God knows. He knows what he's going to do to resolve this whole situation. He knows when he is going to do it. Very soon. He's going to take definitive action in a way that no one will ever forget. He knows just how to do it in a way that will that will honor his covenant with his people, that will heal their awful plight, and that will show the glory of his name over any god or pharaoh of Egypt. God hears and he remembers. And he sees and he knows. Those things have not changed about God. Christian, if you're going through a difficult situation, you're going through a painful circumstance, some hardship, struggling. We have many who are struggling with, with illness in a way I can't comprehend. We have, we have people who are struggling in their relationships, maybe in their marriages or with their kids or with their parents, struggling. And you cry out and you cry out and you look around and where's the help? Rest assured that God hears when you cry. He hears. And he will remember the promises he made to you. He will call them to mind and they will become the top priority on his to-do list. He will deal with it. And he will look at your plight and he knows how to solve your problem. He knows how to work in that difficult relationship that you can't even fathom. You can't figure out how in the world that could ever work out. He knows. You can't figure out how a loved one being sick or you being horribly sick could possibly be livable, much less something that you would someday call God working it for good in your life. But he knows. He knows. And he will act. Romans 8.28 really is true. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He really does work those things for good. I don't comprehend that because sometimes those things include death. Or the death of a loved one. But he knows. He knows how to do that. And it's interesting, not only does he know how to like bring some good out of it as if he is salvaging that situation or whatever, but uh, Colossians 2 and verse 15 talks about the fact that he's doing more than that. He doesn't just uh, you know, save the day kind of thing. He does more than that. Colossians 2, 15 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So this is talking about what happened in Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He put them to shame. So the situation you can't comprehend, you can't see a way through. <laughs> Someday you're going to look back on that and see that situation was nothing for God. He put that situation to shame. He's going to triumph. So Christian, maybe that's you. Christian, maybe, maybe the issue isn't some difficult situation or relationship or circumstance. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's your own sin you're struggling with. Maybe it's got you down. And you, and, and you feel like you're losing. 
and you feel like you're losing, cry out to him. He hears those cries too. And he remembers the promises he made to you. And he remembers the deposit, Christian, that he put in you of his Holy Spirit. And that he himself would sanctify you in the day of Christ Jesus. He hears and he remembers and he sees your situation too. And he knows how to walk you through that so that you can glorify him at the end of that as well. Maybe you don't know Christ. The fact is, he may be calling you to himself even this morning. He may be calling you to respond in faith to him. He hears those cries. He hears those cries. Cry out to him, and he will remember that he said, whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Would not perish, but have eternal life. He remembers that he said that. Cry out to him for eternal life. He will hear you. He also said that to everyone who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He made that promise. He will honor that promise. He remembers. And he sees your plight. He sees the sin you're in. He sees that you are under condemnation because of your sin. He sees how separated you are from him. He sees that you have made yourself an enemy of God. He sees that situation, and he knows how to resolve that. Today, you can respond to him, and today you can become his child. We would never have been able to figure out how we could be made right with God, how we could go from being enemies to being his children. But he knows. And he knows your sin, by the way, and your guilt better than you do. And he sees it in a true light better than you do. He knows his own holiness, and he knows that you're in a bad place because of his holiness and your sinfulness. But he sent his son, and that's why he sent his son, so that your sin could be put on him and punished in Christ instead of in you, so that the wrath of God could be dumped out on him instead of on you. And you, by trusting in him, would be made a child of God, would have forgiveness in Christ. And he offers that this morning. And if you cry out to him today, he will hear you and he will remember those promises. He sees your situation and he knows how to save you even now. Let's pray. Lord, the circumstances of uh, Moses' life are, they seem long ago. And uh, I, can't, I can't relate to him in many ways. I've it's difficult for me to imagine. But I've been in hardship. I've been in difficulty that I have caused myself and that others have caused me. And I know how you have heard my cries. And there was a time when I didn't know you. A time when I was your enemy. A time when I was a rebel against you. I wanted nothing to do with you. And you moved in my heart to cry out to you. And you heard a cry even from a sinner like me. And you remembered your promise to make me your child. You saw my dire situation and my sin and my, my spiritual death. And you, you knew how to solve that. And so you did. You took action. And you saved me and you made me your own. You offer that to each of us. Fathers, we look at uh, 
Exodus here and think about the remainder of Exodus, we're going to see how you're going to act. And it, 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 there are fireworks, and it's huge, and it's a massive display, and, and you put Pharaoh to shame, and you make it very clear his rebellion against you and his hatred of you and his hatred of your people, and, and, and you win. You show yourself strong in this book, and we are uh, we rejoice that we get to read about it. And we get to be encouraged because uh, we, um, many of us, once were in slavery to sin. Some still are. And you offer deliverance, freedom, freedom in Christ. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, will be able to separate you, Christian, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.